Welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh, heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. So, Angie Backus, mm-hmm. this is uh, our episode 52, and in the previous episode, we were talking about, uh, we were trying to shed some light on to why some parents have some difficulties in some parts of the child-rearing process. Mostly, I think we looked at uh, prestige and the importance of prestige in teenagers, but that's not necessarily a helpful lens for parents who have younger children, and you can't really get to the teen stage without dealing with everything else that comes before. That's right. Yeah. Uh, luckily, you have a degree. You have a degree in, in child development, and I can't think of uh, anybody better to sort of lead this discussion. So. <laughs> Um, in terms of the things that, that get in the way for, that you see, some of the things that get in the way for parents of young children, what are some of the ideas that you think make it, make it harder for them? Make it hard for the children or the parents? Make it harder for the parents. Make it harder for the parents. What makes it harder for the parents? I think, you know, starting off, just to put this out, out there, um... I am a very, I'm, an, I'm really into um, attachment theory, which it is, it just basically it's when attachment is formed, when the baby is born, um, secure attachment to the caregiver, to the primary caregiver sets up an organization in the kid's life um, for which kind of gives them um, safety, you know, provides safety. Um, so... In, in making it easier for the parent or what is a problem for the parent, I'm not really sure I could name one thing, but I do know that the foundation of this early attachment is, is really important. We talked about last time, um, you know, that humanity or all of, all of us are really um, trying to get back to the breast. Um, and that's basically, you know, attachment. Um, this idea that once the child knows that their life is safe um, and they can they can consider they consider this in their own little childlike brain um, that when they cry they'll be picked up and soothed when they um, need to be changed that their diaper will be um, when they're hungry that they will get food um, all of that li- lays the foundation for safety for the kid um, so that's so, like, like their from needs the gate. It's like Maslow for babies or something. <laughs> well, yeah, it absolutely it kind of is Maslow for babies, but not just and yes, that their needs will be met, but not just their needs, like not just food and diapering and you know they've done. There's all the kinds of research around failure to thrive for a child if there isn't this kind of component around touch and emotional connection. Um, so, all that to say, you know, a lot a little baby um, is not 
manipulate. It's not manipulative. It's not crying because it it's saying, haha, I tricked you to pick me up. <laughs> it really just wants to be picked up. He or she or whatever needs to be picked up. And it's okay. Pick your baby up. But some babies are manipulative though, right? Some are more than others. Well, cartoon babies. <laughs> no. I mean, manipulation is, I think, intent. You know, I guess manipulating their environment to get what they need, sure. But I don't think it's malicious manipulation. It's, you know, the baby's, you know, hot or hungry or cold or wet or wants you to hold it. You know, when they're, you know, five months, three months, two months, one month old, one month old, they're not in their little baby brain, you know, conspiring against you. They just need, have a need. Meet it. Well, you you're saying basically they're not smart enough to, to, to outsmart a parent. <laughs> no. And they really have no uh, desire, you know, that's missing. I got to say, if you are a parent who are outsmarted by a baby, then you need to be outsmarted. That's There you go. Maybe, yeah. that, maybe that's the parenting advice. Don't be outsmarted by your baby. Exactly. The end. That, that's it, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Don't be outsmarted by your baby. Um... So, I mean, you know, I, I guess when I think about, uh, I mean, I would say when I when I listen to, to parents talk, but that's that doesn't happen a lot. People right. start talking about their kids and I tune them out. Yes. It was like, oh, my baby. And it was like, all I hear is bzzz after that. <laughs> it was like, oh, somebody's about to call me, I think. Uh, I got to go. Um, but I could imagine a world uh-huh. in which people are... Um, you know, they're like, oh my God, this is so hard. I don't know what I'm doing. That uh, they're having some difficulty in the whole parenting process. That's it, the, the parent, does, not does, the baby. Okay. Yeah, does that ever happen? Oh gosh, yes. So, so that's what I mean. Can you like, what are some of the things that that you think could be helpful to those people? Well, I, you know, it depends on what the hard is. Is it hard that you are being awakened every hour by your baby? Is it hard that you know, you have very little childcare and you have a full-time job. I mean, there are so many ways in which this can be hard. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, mostly as I've learned throughout my life, you know, my first kid, I was very worried about messing the kid up. My concern was really about doing all the right things so that this child will have a good life. My understanding of child development was that this early foundation that I was putting down was really important. Um, everything I was doing, I was afraid was not everything, but I was always questioning myself, is this a misstep? Um, <clears throat> that was so many years ago. Going down the line now with, with, the, with the youngest child, I think I have a greater understanding of myself, which I think then is it's an outpouring of my parenting. Um, and one of those things is parenting from the perspective of what I would think is a good life for my child. And I think that is one of the questions as parents that we can determine. We like, ask ourselves. What, what is a good life for your child? Yeah. And there are so many different things that a, a parent might consider that what they want for their child. Uh, so many things factor into that, the way they're raised what they're thinking that they're going to pass on to their kid, um, what they think a good life is. Is it having a yacht or is it, you know, living on a farm? Is it, you know, being the best person that you can possibly be or is it hard work? There's so many things and I think we don't really parse this through. We mostly go on automatic. 
Yeah, so this is really difficult because, um, or it seems really difficult to me because it requires a, requires people, I think, to be, one, thoughtful in ways that are, you were just talking about what it means to be on automatic. Uh, most of us are on automatic all the time. And by that, I mean, um, you know, sort of the, whatever it means to slow down and think about your own context, Mm -hmm. uh, your own context as a human, what you want, what you're here for. Um, If you're here for anything, you know, there needn't necessarily be an answer. You can, you come up with zero. Um, But just, uh, just this idea of, you know, maybe Socrates is the way to think about it, right? Uh, The life unexamined is not worth living. Um, just thinking about what it means to um, to slow down and think about uh, to to examine your life, uh, and the reason that I, I've gone on in in this particular context is if you don't have enough examination of your own life, it's very easy to just extend. Um, you know, to extend that idea of yourself into the life of your child and your child becomes an extension of you, not just genetically, which is every child, but also in terms of your ideas, um, your hopes, your wishes, some of the things that you didn't get for yourself. I find that, uh, so you talk about ideas, I, I find that some of the things that, that kind of undermine some parents is they really just want their kids to be little versions of them and the hopes and dreams that they have for their own lives that then project onto their kids. And the kids don't really get a sense of who they are outside of their parents, if you know what I mean. So, um, you know, just just this sense of, you know, I, I have to believe, especially for this context, right? And I think the context is important. The context that, that I mean is in this civilization that we are in, post-enlightenment, individualist, internet-connected civilization, um, that individual identity is important. And I want to talk about that context because there are some places where individualism right. is not nearly important. No, no, yeah. But in this particular civilization, in our civilization... Um, you know, having your kid develop an identity that is separate from yours, I think is going to be critical for allowing them to be productive and happy members of society. And so at least being aware of, like, so here's an example. Here's like a real life example. Say one of your hopes and dreams is to one day have grandkids. Mm Mm-hmm. And then your kid, you find out at some point... Um, doesn't want kids. Doesn't want kids. Or maybe they're gay and they don't want kids. So it's like it's just totally not going to be possible for them. Um, how, how do you respond as a parent? It's like when your dreams as a parent get shut down, does that then affect your relationship with your kids? Mm-hmm. Or can you just allow sort of for the happiness of your kids in, in terms of however it is that they need to figure out their world. But like figuring out what you're bringing into it at the identity level is at least one of these important things to, to understand and be able to separate. Yeah, that's so important. I think that's um, a good reason for therapy, <laughs> just to say. I think, 
you know, these unconscious acts that we are in the midst of, we don't even know, you know, that's the automatic part. We're not aware sometimes of what we're, uh, what's infiltrating our, our parenting around our own desires. Um, and the truth is, unless you are, I don't know, a hugely self-aware, your kid is going to activate so much of whatever pain is not resolved or whatever thing that you had longed for or whatever hope you had had as a child. Um, and this is getting even getting back into attachment theory. You know, what are you trying to resolve? And, you know, we are on this continuum of trying to resolve something within us. If you have an understanding of what that is, um, then you're, you can work with it in your parenting. So say, for an example, uh, you, you never really got uh, unconditional or support from your, from your parent. Maybe to your point, you know, the, this idea that as long as you are on some kind of path that you knew that your parent approved of, um, you, were, uh, you were good. Um, and so you, you grow up with this kind of understanding of the world a lot of times an unconscious way of attaching to people in, in kind. You know, as long as I'm doing what I think this person wants me to do, I'm safe. And then the, the, um, the kid comes and the same sort of process starts to get going. You know, my kid needs to do the things that I would hope that they would do to show me that you know, the child loves me. That's how I'll know that, that I'm loved because that's how you were taught love looks. Um, and to your point, what if the kid doesn't want to be an an all-star baseball player and instead they want to, um, be a roller skater, you know, and roller skate, um, all the way to California. I want to be a professional roller skater. Exactly. (laughs) Totally. And then what do you do? You know, one, you know, here's this kind of pattern or organization that says they don't love me if they loved me they would be doing the thing that i i want for them um that's how i'll know i mean you know this is unconscious it's not really you're not saying this to yourself but you can feel kind of the rift in that and to your point again uh, you have to be conscious you have to understand that this stuff has been activated and has been kind of swimming around internally since you're a little child. So, mm. you know, parts of these, you know, part part of this is to try to understand what you don't know about yourself and right. what you're visiting on that kid. Well, that's that whole self-awareness piece, which is, you know, that's hard. That's, it is hard. That's, that's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I uh, So I'm going to overshare a little bit uh, here. Uh, I've, I've had two surgeries in my life. Okay. Um, the first one... Um, first one was the result of of a childhood injury that had lingered over time um and uh you know i had to see a euro urologist surgeon right right um and uh they went in through the perineum and like snipped the little little thing um cut it out it was like some scar tissue just totally oversharing um, but w- what I found interesting, and so, you know, I, I kind of looked up the, the urologist and like, I read one of his papers, he was published. He was like, mm, yeah, I'm an important urologist. Um, what I felt was fascinating though, is his dad was a urologist surgeon too. Hmm. And I was like, what's the likelihood 
I mean, it's possible that as a kid, there were like models of like the urinary tract all over the house. And like, maybe you're just fascinated. Like, that was the bladder do? What do the kidneys do? What's the difference between urine and urethra? Like, maybe that happened. Right? And he was just like super fascinated as a kid. But I got to think uh, that that's probably not what's happened. I could, uh, listen, I'm totally open to being wrong sure. about this. Yeah. My suspicion is that, um, you know, he was pressured to follow in his dad's footsteps, whether it was overt pressure or covert pressure. Yeah. Um, I think that that, that happens. There's, a, there's another kid that I know, so that's a, a different story. There's another kid that I know. His, uh, his dad's a judge. His, um, his, uh, his granddad is a judge. And, uh, you know, he, he ended up uh, becoming, um, you know, prosecutor. Uh, an okay prosecutor. Uh, I know that it's not necessarily the... Um, I mean, I know, I know that he has another passion because he, he went on TV and tried to become like a professional TV chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't work out for him. He didn't get very far in his competition. But, um, you know, w- what does it mean to, to just follow in the footsteps of what's that familial pressure? What's that, whether it's conscious or unconscious, overt or, or latent, that, that pressure that you get from your parents to you know, do what we think that you should do. And I'm not saying that that's, that guidance is wrong. Um, but you clearly have lots of, of people who are unhappy in their professions because they did it for their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and looking at the parental mentality going into that, like what, that's like that parent's inability to separate themselves from from their kids. Right, it is. And even if that is out born out of this doing this really wonderful thing we're carrying on a family tradition right which that even in and of itself is should be really thought out i I was not too long ago considering with this my last child who who's really different from me um so i'm often kind of navigating my internal landscape to try to understand where she's coming from or how to accept what's going on and not take things personally. Um, but I was considering some things that she was doing and in my head, this voice in my head, which was my voice said, my dad would have never put up with this. Like this is not at all how Norm Backus would let a child, you know, behave or do even behave that word behavior. That behavior is unacceptable. And even hearing myself say that, I think with the first child, my twenty now 24-year-old, that voice would have guided me to do something else. Mm. Like, no, this isn't okay. This isn't how parents should be, you know, receiving their child. This child shouldn't do this. At this stage, um, after a lot of process and talking through things, um, I can hear that voice and then evaluate, is that true? You know, I, I don't think what my dad did was necessarily... Um, wrong, if I could use that word, I guess wrong, right? Who knows? But is that really um, a, a, a primary um, thought around parenting? Do I have to um, adhere to that just because it has become the value or the voice that I hear in my head? And to separate myself from that and say, you know, maybe that 
is fine for, you know, what Norm did with me, with Angie, um, but this might not be what, what this kid needs. And what is this value that I'm holding to so steadfastly, you know, even in the sense of value, like I value this about um, what a kid should be, how a kid should be responding to a parent. So I think there's this really important level of awareness that you just sort of brought to the fore by, by, by telling this story. Um, and, and it's about, so I talked a little bit about context earlier, uh, and I, I sort of want to tie these things together. What is it, you know, if we ask ourselves this question, uh, what is it that we want for our children? Right? And I think how you answer that, how one answers that is very important to sort of what goes in, into the shaping of that behavior, your own behavior as a parent, and also the behavior of your child over time. Um, and so in this particular context, right, in the United States, and there are various contexts even within the United States, let's say that your goal is to, um, let's say that your goal is to have a happy, right, and that's important for lots of parents, mm-hmm. it's not important for all parents, but say your goal is to have a a child that when they become an adult, mm-hmm. they are happy as mm-hmm. adults, they are functional in society. That means they're both contributing and they have healthy relationships. People like them and they like people. People don't avoid them, right? We've all seen enough weirdos out there. <laughs> Nobody wants a weirdo for a kid. Um, but let's say they're able to, you know, uh, sustain relationships and have friends and, you know, have a family of their own and they're happy. Like, if that is what you want for your children... I think that's sort of the core value set uh, or behavior. That's the development style that we're, we're sort of talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to say that because there are some parents who desire different things for their, for mm-hmm. their children, where maybe like happiness is not the goal, but being tough is the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I had a, a former friend once... Um, so I guess I'll go ahead and use the language here. But uh, I had a former friend once. He was um, he was talking to his son. His son was probably six years old. And, uh, you know, the kid was crying because kids cry. Right? They do that. And uh, he told him to uh, stop crying like a little bitch. Hmm. And I was like, Bro, is all that really necessary? Hmm. Uh, and you know he said some uh, he said some other things about how he didn't want his his son to to turn out um, that weren't necessarily uh, you know language that that I would want to repeat. Um, but for this guy, you know, and he's a tough guy, he's a macho guy, mm-hmm. right? He's super tough. Um, he wanted his kid to be a tough guy like him. Mm-hmm. Um, his idea of healthy relationships was not part of what he wanted, at least not in any conscious kind of yeah. way. So, you know, if 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 your instinct is to put a, a gun in the, in the hand of your child and make sure they're tough and make sure they're a fighter and make sure they're in the military like you, um, all these things are true uh, of this person, um, then maybe you're not focused on their happiness or their well-being or their ability to navigate human relationships in the same way. Like you have a different goal, and I, I just want to say that if that's your goal, you probably turn you probably turn this episode off because like mm-hmm. that's 
none of what gets said after this is going to be relevant to to the things that you want. But this question around what is it that you want for your child um, in this context, I, I think is important, right? And if you want a happy, you know, if you want your kid to grow up to be a happy adult who can navigate the types of relationships that you'll find in our civilization, mm-hmm. um, then then it's important to, to sort of understand. Um, yeah, it's important to understand at least that question, to ask yourself that question. What do I want for this kid? Yeah, and I think that, you know, even if you say, I want my kid to be happy, and that's the goal, um, it's worth asking yourself even to pull that apart a bit and say, well, what does happiness look like as well? You know, I, I have friends that um, have groomed their children in a particular way because they have... Um, internalized a sense of happiness for, you know, this going to the most prestigious college, getting the degree in whatever is going to provide a really hefty income. And this is the track for their child. Um, And, you know, so far, I have one particular friend who's one child on that track, totally is doing it. Um, she's she is type A. She has fulfilled all those requirements that her parents had set out for her. They have another child who's doing something completely different. Um, he really wants a very simple lifestyle. He doesn't want the pressure of the corporate world. He is very happy in a small space, his little apartment. And you know, my friend is she is adamant in believing that this kid is not happy. And the things that she tells me that he talks about, to me, it sounds like the kid is happy, but she can't accept it because for her, she has internalized the sense of happiness as one particular way. And so she's con- she's convinced this kid is not happy and he's just not in touch with his unhappiness. Mm. I think this kid is actually happy. I think he is doing something different than his parents and they can't really see that this is this kid's um, interaction with life that's so different than the others. Well, th- this is actually, I think, where, where people like like you and me, um, like people like you and I are, are really helpful in, in these types of ways because I, I have a really good idea of what happiness is, mm-hmm. right? Um, and not just like based on like this makes me happy, but <laughs> there's like a body of research mm-hmm. that has like emerged over the, the last 20 years it really talks about what makes people happy in their individual lives, in their careers, in their spiritual pursuits, in their families, uh, in their you know their relationship with friends. Like we have a really good understanding of what happiness looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not up to guessing anymore. Right. Uh, and so so yeah, I mean just just thinking about um, you know if I had to listen to you know you telling the story about somebody's gut instinct about what happiness looks like for them versus like, oh, actually, this person sounds like they're probably happier than uh, than their parent might imagine. Uh, well, that, that might, yeah, I'm, I'm going to default to you in that case. I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to trust your gut better than, uh, than someone who's doing it on default. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, we've done shows about this. That's true. We've and done yes. Shows happiness shows and there's research out there and yes i from what i'm hearing this kid has internalized some of that however it's worked um and she just can't believe it 
I have I had a similar I have a similar experience I think you know my lifestyle and the way that I've chosen my adult life is very um, different than my mom um, whom I love my mom but she her ideas around what happiness is is very different than mine and as you just mentioned you know it's research based <laughs> but I think you know for for many many years and probably still my mom does she feels sorry for me. She thinks I'm not happy. Mm. <laughs> um, is she happy? No. I mean, she doesn't listen to this show. So, But I think, no, I think my mom is not happy. Um, but I think she is on a, a trajectory of the ways that she thinks happiness looks that, you know, what we talk, we've talked about on the show, you know, acquiring more and more and more. You never get there. You don't get there. Right. So happiness doesn't come from external sources it it's an internal process right so and my mom you know she's always kind of thought of what is out there that she can grab or take not take but get that is going to provide her with more comfort and and warmth um she grew up really really poor and then you know she and my dad did pretty pretty well um so i think in some ways she felt like she got a, an answer to or an antidote to the poverty that she grew up in and it did you know bring whatever we know happens you know there's serotonin and dopamine and all kinds of things when you get the new table or the boat or whatever but um not to get too far off on this but yeah so i think from my own sense of having been parented by a parent that believes that my path can't possibly be the one that I should be on, I get this. And, um, you know, sometimes as parents, uh, you trust your kid. Your kid has probably, you know, and in my case and my friend, I think, you know, trusting that he's okay, if he's saying he's okay, ask him how he's okay. Talk to him about it. Um, get some insight around his own process rather than judging him according to yours. Yeah, here's the, maybe the last thing that I, because we're, we're clearly into the, in, back to the teenager. Yes, uh, we, we went far away. Yeah, we're clearly back to the uh, people who are basically young adults. Um, I mean, there is a sense of, of, there's a minimal amount of money that I think is necessary to be, you know, significantly happy. Right? So if we look at some of the, the studies, like people who make, you know, $25,000 a year, um, you know, even 10 years ago, like these are old numbers, but let, let's bump it up. Like people who are making like, let's say $30,000 a year um, are, are not as happy on average as people who are making... $50,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And people who are making $50,000 a year are not as happy on average. Um, this is self-reported. But, like, you know, there are all these things that, that come into play uh, that, you know, give some real credence to it. Like health insurance or medical bills. Sure. Or mortgages, uh, you know, real estate markets. So people who make, let's say, $80,000 a year are, on average, they're happier than people who make 50000 Year. But this is on a curve, right? And so what you see is that this curve starts to flatten out after a while. So the, the amount of happiness that you can buy between $25,000 uh, and $50,000 a year is more, much more happiness you can buy in that sort of income jump than you can between $50,000 and $80,000. Mm-hmm. But what becomes really interesting is the difference between, let's say, $80,000, and these are old numbers, so let me adjust them. Let's say you're at $85,000 a year. 
um, versus $185,000 a year. That's a much smaller gap in the amount of happiness that you can quote unquote buy than it is between uh, $25,000 and $50,000. And that's $100,000 more than $85,000, but the amount of additional happiness that you can purchase starts to diminish greatly. Mm-hmm. Such that the difference between like $200,000 a year and a million dollars a year is negligible. It's almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Right? This you is can... like backed with research. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, there are more toys that you can buy. But there's not much more that you can do in terms of the actual impact of happiness in your life. So for some part of the income scale, money matters a lot. And then once you get past, let's say, $85,000, money starts to matter less and less and less. And then eventually you start to like almost, you have an asymptotal relationship. Uh, It starts to peter out in a way that it just gets uh, smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, and it makes sense. I mean, this is, you know, we've talked about on the show, these are the Anthony Bourdain's of the world. You know, once you have reached, you know, if you're if you're on the hamster wheel and you are spinning it to get to more and you eventually get to some climatic spot of more, 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 and you're still not satisfied, then what? You know, then there's some real depression there. But uh, I digress. Uh, and, you know, I think getting back to because I think it's important, you know, we, I, I know we were starting out with little kids, but, you know, this this understanding of even when they're very small, you know, what it is that you're trying to do and what your goals are. And, you know, we talked about even if you're the parent that wants your kid to find happiness and that's your goal to consider what your happiness is and there's research out there what happiness is um, and go find that go read some books <laughs> and learn what happiness is because it may not be the MBA and not I didn't say NBA but that could be the case too and you know seven hundred thousand dollars a year maybe that's not it yeah I think I understand the parental concern to make sure that your kid doesn't end up at one of these twenty five thousand dollar a year jobs you know uh, painting uh painting characters caricatures on, on the street for like 50 cents like no no one wants that for the kid because um, then you have to be like oh no it's great no that's totally me that's my face you totally captured it um and then it was like yeah i'll hang it on the fridge when i get home um you you don't want to have to pretend to have wow, that there's one. a whole thing there yeah you don't have to you don't want that relationship right. with your kid your right. kid is doing caricatures on the train Although for, I, for bagels. <laughs> for bagels. Okay. I have to push back just a bit here because I think if you're a parent that understands the concept or the or the internalization of happiness, I don't know, maybe this is a whole different show, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, if you are and you can give that to your kid, if the kid ends up at some point in their life, you know, at 24... They don't know what they want to do, and they're a little worried about direction, and their view of happiness has been instilled in the right college and the right job, they're going to really panic. If you have um, a kid that maybe is doing caricatures but loves it and finds all kinds of joy in you know their sidewalk job, then that's a thing. And I do believe that if you give the kid the understanding that this, you know, perhaps what happiness looks like, 
that it doesn't have to be this reaching all the time. And if they find themselves in a place where maybe the standard that they had hoped to get to isn't there, they can still be happy. Yes, they could still be happy, right? So I'm going to push back against your pushback. It's possible. Um, It's certainly not impossible. There are two things that happen, though. Um, And one of the things is is that certainly we know from the data is that um, that amount of money, $25,000 a year, um, is you are really not so happy in your life circumstances. It's kind of the Maslow thing, right? Yeah. There are a lot... I mean, you know, you might have... Depending on where you live, right? 25000 in New York City, you should just go ahead and move to... Well, that's it. You know... That's uh, a day of rent. South, South Jersey. <laughs> right. Just, just move to Camden. Um, because it's... Uh, it's not going to work out in New York. Um, Although pandemic, post-pandemic, maybe. I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> but... But so, like, there, there is a number. There is a financial number. And even if you understand uh, an internal sense of happiness, there's still lots of things that become, you know, like you said, it's sort of like the Maslow thing. Like, yeah. yeah, so maybe even if you can feed yourself. You're fighting for survival. But you're young and you can't go on dates. Yeah. And you're less viable in the market in that way because people are like, you are legit broke. Mm-hmm. And I bought the last two bagel, you know, brunches that we had. At some point, you know, like, whatever. Like, that becomes... Um, but the other thing, too, is if you spend too much time there, and this is, you know, one of the things that is easy to sort of miss out when you're young, is, you know, when you're in 20s, and you're in your 20s, you're organizing part of your life mm-hmm. for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And if you spend too much time in your 20s um, being sort of financially just in the wind, and then all of a sudden... Your 30s start to creep up and you don't have a skill set that, that you've developed. And the reason I say it's it's possible to do it right is because there, there are a set of principles that exist mm-hmm. that allows you to take being, you know, to, to go from making caricatures to making, you know, a life out of it. Right. Uh, that, that path is possible. Uh, but there are also lots of young people who don't figure out how to organize the parts of their life early enough such that they enter their 30s with that part still disorganized. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be a disaster for their 40s. And, and by the time you hit your 40s or your late 30s, like, it's, like you're fully adult now, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> all the, all the, of the elasticity, all the, the, the grace. All the passes, yeah. Yeah, they, the grace is not there anymore. Right. Um, and then that, that's really the... That's really the difficulty. Again, I you know I know some people who um, who work, uh, and they're they're like forties moving into fifties. But I certainly know people who, yeah, I don't even want to say who just like whatever. Like their life is disorganized enough mm-hmm. that that trying to put it back together again is uh, it's like them trying to build something with with dry sand. It's mm-hmm. just like sand is constantly falling through their fingers sure. and, and they can't do it. And that's tough. Yeah. Yeah, that is tough. And I, you know, I think getting back again to this understanding of, of what to do, you know, this very important foundation of, you know, when you have a kid, um, you know, we're asking this big question to do some self-reflection and evaluate 
what it is that you might consider a good life is or what you want for the kid. Um, and to uh, know that you're bringing a whole lot of baggage at, on some level mm. and to check it, you know, check what it is that you're trying to do. And this is um, a, a great opportunity for growth um, for the adult, honestly, because all kinds of things get kicked up when you have a kid. Um, and, you know, I've, <laughs> I've talked to parents at the beginning of, of the kid's life where, you know, it's so hard and they're missing sleep and, when am I ever going to get sleep again? And when is a kid going to stop nursing? Or when is a kid going to get potty trained? You know, I've had a client just recently potty training and she was gone out of her mind. You know, it was feeling as if this was never going to end. I guess the kid was just like peeing everywhere all the time, just peeing everywhere. Um, and, you know, reminding her that, you know, this is a stage, you know, unless there's something, you know, organically wrong with your child. You know, when they're in college, they're not going to be peeing everywhere. This is going to end. This will end. You hope. <laughs> you hope. But, and, and to understand, though, even in that frustration, when you're not getting what you want from your child, what's happening inside of you? Uh, what is the, the conflict within you that says this is supposed to be happening in a particular way? And examine those things. Um, don't just go on... Um, automatic try not to um and consider that all of those feelings are appropriate in parenting land you know wait the kid's supposed to be doing this that's not my thing that's this kid's thing i have to change the kid maybe you change yourself yeah i gotta say if my kid were peeing everywhere i would want to change the kid but your your, your point is taken uh it, it is certainly an opportunity and this is probably uh I, I, you you sort of wrapped it up but i, I think it's a good point to reflect on uh, yeah, it's an opportunity for you to, to ask yourself what it is that you, you want for your child as an adult. Uh, what is it that you want for your child inside of their childhood? Like, you know, what are the things that, that you want for them? But also, I think the way you said it, it's a, it's a great opportunity for you to reflect on yourself and your own wishes and your, your own sort of sense of identity. Um, and then that's an opportunity for growth. So That's right. So obviously we didn't really solve any any big mysteries this time around, uh, but hopefully people have uh, just some better questions, uh, some better questions and some better ways to think about their own process going into it. Uh, and we'll try to deliver the same thing next week. Better questions, better context, and just uh, some ways to think about it. So certainly appreciate you hanging in there with us. And uh, we'll see you in a week. See ya.